Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So, tonight, a humility of mind. I say humility of mind because I don't just mean a humility of appearance or a humility of behavior or a humility of speech, right? There's a, we, when we think about humility, those are the things we think of. You know, somebody who says the right things, who disavows the compliments, who says, oh, I'm nothing, who maybe looks miserable, maybe acts, you know, in, in submission and, and, and subservience to other people or, you know, kind of has a hangdog expression or, or you know, we, these are the things we think of. I, but there is something there is something that comes from our devotion to Christ that leads to a humility that's, that's part of the way we think. And it's part of the way we see the world. And I think this truly is a treasure. But this one may be a little harder for us to see as a treasure because it is really countercultural right now. Because our culture has lost the value of humility as a value, as a virtue. We tend to now see humility in lots of ways. <laughs> that are not virtuous. But part of that is because we don't understand what humility is. Again, is it is a lot of us, I think, think that humility is the idea of walking around believing that everybody else is better than you are, that you are worth less than they are, that your value in the universe is not as great as theirs, and therefore it makes sense for you to submit to them, to serve them, to do what they want you to do, because they deserve better than you do. You may not say, I feel like I'm worth less than other people, but how often do you sympathize with other people when something happens to them, but when the same thing happens to you, you blame yourself and don't sympathize? Well, what you're doing at that moment is you're saying, I deserved it, they didn't. Well, why do you deserve it and they didn't? Some of you might do the opposite. Some of you may see other people to whom bad things happen and you think, well, they made their choices. We'll get into all that. But the point is that humility really doesn't have anything to do with finding out and discovering who's better than whom. That isn't what humility is about. So let's take a look and let's see what it is. One thing I want to say is whatever you think humility is, it has to fit Jesus because we're told that Jesus is humble of spirit. We're told that Jesus is filled with humility. We're even told in a verse we're about to look at to use Jesus as our example of humility. So think about the problem there. If humility means recognizing that other people are better than you, can that fit Jesus? <laughs> Of course not. So there's a problem if that's what we think it means. So let's take a look. And you'll see even in this verse, you may, you may see a verse, you'll be like, but wait, that looks like it's saying other people are better than me. But we'll read through it and let's see. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we actually looked, or it's actually more than 6 through 8, but 6 through 8 is what I'm going to show on the screen. But starting at the beginning of chapter 2, we're going to look at verses we read before. We actually read this when we talked about the life of love. So some of you, will, this will look a little familiar to you. But this is what we said or what Paul says to the Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And this is why we talked about a life of love coming from the, the fact that when we immerse ourselves in Jesus, when we find that comfort, that encouragement, when we, when we are living in that space, we are more likely to have that same love for other people. But it goes on and he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, this is a really interesting word. And those are, those are 
This is a translation, obviously, and in the English language, those are loaded words that no one wants to walk around saying, I am full of selfish ambition and vain conceit. We would all be like, don't do that. But when you break it really down, you'll find that a lot of what we do is selfish ambition or vain conceit. And here Paul says, don't do anything. What is selfish ambition? It is doing something for yourself. (laughs) Okay, I know. That's tough already. You're like, but wait, how am I? Are you telling us we're not supposed to take care of ourselves? That's very countercultural. And it's not exactly what I'm saying either. We'll get there. But don't be ambitious. Don't be greedy for only for the things of yourself. And then he says, don't do anything out of vain conceit. Here, it's this idea of thinking that you deserve more than you do and therefore acting as if you are better than you are. And in fact, the problem is it's all empty. It doesn't go anywhere because it doesn't come from anywhere. So there's some ideas there. There's some concepts that we sort of understand. We understand that we shouldn't just be selfish, greedy people getting everything for ourselves. We understand that we shouldn't just be thinking we're better than everyone else and trying to give ourselves. We we, we see some of that, but let's keep going because I think he makes more clear what his concern is. He says, rather, so instead of that, the opposite of that, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves. And that's where you say, aha, I am supposed to see other people as better than me. Hold that thought. I promise you will come back. But he says, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. But then he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he says, value others is better than yourselves, and then says, like Jesus. So it cannot mean, when he says value others better than yourselves, that we're supposed to actually believe that other people are superior to us, because Jesus could never have had that mindset. Do you see that? He didn't come to earth and die for us because he realized that our space in the universe was more valuable than his as God. He didn't say, well, all those people, they deserve better than I do because they're better people. They're superior to me. Therefore, I, as their creator, am obviously less good than they am. So I deserve to die and they deserve to live. None of that makes any sense, does it? So we'll come back to what it does mean, but let's read what he did. Because he says, have the mindset that was reflected in this way. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, so think about this. This is, this is, these are some huge statements here. Paul says that God, that Jesus was and is God. In very nature. It just means he was God. There's no difference. The nature of God, of Jesus, is the nature of God. Okay? He was in very nature God, but then it says this weird thing. Jesus, even though he was God, looking out over the whole universe, which he created, which he is master of, which he can wipe out in the blink of an eye or the snap of a finger or the thought or whatever, not even any of those things. (laughs) He can wipe it all out. Here he is, he's God, and by the way, he would be right to do so because it's all his. He owns all of it. So being that God, who in very nature is by definition superior to everything in the universe, it says that what he did with his deity, though, with his godliness, is he chose not to use that for his own advantage. Let's be honest. If you or I were God, we would spend all our time using that godhoodness to our own advantage, wouldn't we? (laughs) To make ourselves happier, more powerful, more more prosperous to enrich ourselves. But this is the amazing thing that Paul says. God had, Jesus had the advantage of being God. 
that means every advantage over you. But he chose not to use that advantage for his own enrichment. Instead, he chose to use all of his advantages for your enrichment. And the only way that he did that, or the way he could see to do that, or the way he chose to do that, I don't know how to put it, I don't know how the universe works exactly here, but for whatever reason, the way he did that was to lay aside all of those privileges and advantages that he had as God and to become a human. Think about the privileges he laid aside that you're kind of like, was it really even necessary that he lay that aside? Like, if you were God and you were coming to earth as a man and you were going to die on the cross for the sins of all people, one thing occurs to me is, okay, I'll die on the cross, but how about I just make myself as a human unable to feel pain? Seems like a privilege I can live with. <laughs> right? Or, or how about I spare myself adolescent years altogether? Why don't I just come to earth as a 30-year-old man, do three years of life on the earth, instead of having to do 33 years of life on this miserable earth? <laughs> I mean, even the fact that he chose to be born, he didn't have to do that. He laid aside his advantage of never having to experience birth. He laid aside his advantage of never having to experience pain. He laid aside his advantage of never having to be obedient to anybody. It says in Hebrews, he learned obedience. And that's fascinating to me because he's God, right? How could he learn anything? But then you think about it and that makes sense. God never had to be obedient to anybody. But as he walked the earth, he submitted himself to his parents, to the authorities around him, and to the father, he says. He learned obedience. He didn't have to do any of that. For some reason, he laid aside every advantage he has in order to become like us. To, to, to only have the advantages we have. And he did it so that we could have the advantages that he has of life and holiness and righteousness. It's a crazy, crazy thing. But I want you to see some other things about the fact that he did this. Oh, and Paul emphasizes that he not only did that, but he went, he went even further. He not only died, he died on a cross, which we don't understand because for us a cross is a nice little clean silver piece that we wear around our neck. But I mean, think about a gas chamber. That's actually closer. Not even the electric chair. The electric chair, that's our mode of execution. It's easy to think of it as still kind of clean and just. <laughs> depending on what your views are, and that's okay. But the gas chamber, we all recognize, was just a horrific crime. Well, that's pretty much what Roman crucifixion was. It was a horrific way to keep people down because it was in public view, and it was torturous, and it was suffering, and most people died from asphyxiation, not from the nails in them. They died because they suffocated hanging on a cross because they simply couldn't get enough air. That's awful. I can't, I, can't, I can't imagine almost, uh, it's just awful. That's horrible. I hate that thought. So he died and he died in this terrible way. <laughs> and, he, and he didn't have to die. He never had to experience death, but he did it for you. And, and the thing I want you to think about as we think about humility, because again, what does this mean? Let's look at what it doesn't mean for sure. Let's look at some things that are, did not happen here because it's really important. Because using the example of Jesus for our example of humility, it's troubling and it's difficult. And if you take it seriously, you immediately start asking questions like, usually the, I, I hear this phrase a lot when I encourage people to be like this. One of the phrases I hear is, well, so we're supposed to be a doormat. And, and I don't know what they mean by that exactly, so I'm not exactly sure how to answer it, but let me tell you some things that are true of Jesus that may help us. Number one, it's very clear. Jesus was not coerced or manipulated or bullied or emotionally blackmailed 
or guilted into the choice that he made. Do you see that? Nobody on earth reached up to God in heavens and said, look at you sitting in your high and mighty throne. How dare you do that while we're down here, miserable and suffering. You should come help us out. If someone had said that, God would have laughed and said, whatever. He wasn't manipulated into it. There's no resentment. A lot of us fear when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, you know how painful the cross was? Because this is how we do it. Sometimes we're like, you think about how much Jesus suffered and you will feel better about your life. I'm not sure how that works, but that's what we say sometimes. But when we get to heaven, it's a great encouragement to me that everything I understand about the Lord and everything I understand about scripture and everything I even understand about what John says heaven will be like is that when we get to heaven, it will, we will not be greeted by a stern Jesus who will say, I'm happy you're here, but for the first thousand years of eternity, I want to talk to you about how hard it was for me to save you. He's not that stereotypical, unfairly stereotypical mother who's like, you know, I gave, I labored for 49 days for you. He doesn't do that because he has no resentment because this was his choice and he made it. He also was obviously not forced. Nobody forced him to do this. So if you mean by doormat, should you just let people run ramshot over you and use their power to force you? No. Jesus says very clearly, nobody takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. So it's weird. The Christian church for a while had arguments about whether the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus or whether the Romans were responsible for killing Jesus or whether every Christian should be responsible for killing Jesus. And they forgot to read the words in which Jesus said, I'm responsible for killing Jesus. I chose this. So whatever it means, it's not that. Also, as we talked about it, clearly when it says value others above yourselves, it cannot mean that Jesus sat in his throne and said, the rest of the world is better than I am. I deserve to die so that they can live. Nope. In fact, I think Jesus is more clear than any of us ever will be or ever have been that he did not deserve to die. And that we did. (laughs) We are so, I think, only vaguely aware of the unfairness of this whole proposition. We think justice and fairness are the same thing, but they're not. The death on the cross was just, but it was not fair. So some translations do even say there where it says value others above yourself. Some say consider others better than yourselves. I'm glad the NIV changed it. They used to have that. They used to translate that way because it is problematic. What does that mean that Jesus considered others better than himself? But if we just, regardless of the translation, if you keep reading, Paul does explain what he means. And what he means is what he says next, which is where he says, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. See, here's why he says it this way, why he says value others above yourselves, is he's just pointing out an obvious truth about our lives. It's really hard to argue with my next statement. If you want to argue with me in your head, go for it, but it's really hard to do. You'll, 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 You'll lose eventually, even if I don't interject. It's really hard to argue with the truth that the vast majority of our mental energy, physical energy, time spent, money spent, resources spent, are all spent taking care of ourselves. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's true, right? You feed yourself more than you feed anybody else, even if you're a mother, right? You buy things for yourself more than you buy them for anybody else, even if you're very generous. You put more time into what you need than you do into anyone else, even if you're very loving. It's just the reality. When you need to go to the bathroom, this is a really simple example, that takes priority over everybody else, right? 
because you need to go to the bathroom. Someone else needs to go to the bathroom. It doesn't bother you nearly as much. Let's just be honest. It's just, it's just the reality. And Paul knows it's the reality. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying you should stop going to the bathroom. To treat, uh, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that's the reality of life. Most of our time and resources are spent taking care of ourselves. Why? Because to be honest, we're really important to ourselves. And that is okay. That's not wrong. But there is this thing that happens as human beings that we all go through. And that's that when we start as children, and we are children, there's this period of our life where we don't even recognize that other people have autonomy and existence. They only exist for us, right? And it doesn't, it confuses us that other people would have lives that aren't about us. My daughter, Lorraine, one of her college professors once said to her something which I think is brilliant. She said, every human being, when they grow up, if they grow up, some people don't, <laughs> but every human being, when they grow up, if they grow up, has to undergo their own private Copernican revolution. The Copernican revolution refers to the fact that Copernicus was the guy who recognized, or he's the guy given the credit for most pop popularizing the idea that everything does not revolve around the earth. <coughs> everything doesn't orbit around the earth. In fact, the earth is just one of many things that orbits around the sun. It's a whole shift in importance in the universe, right? And this professor was saying, as human beings, we all have to go through that, where we recognize, oh, you mean everything doesn't revolve around me? <laughs> the whole universe is not about me? You mean I'm just one of these pieces that revolves around something else? And I think this is what Paul's getting at. Humility is having a realistic perspective of your place in the universe. You are not the sun. You are not what everything revolves around. And therefore, says Paul, when you look at somebody else, if you're honest, you have to say, why are my needs more important than theirs? Really? See, that's weird. Because obviously they are, because I'm me. But Paul says that's not enough. So he says, value others above yourselves. What he means by that is, you, we, have to, we have to really make a mental shift. And we have to say, at this moment, you know, I can meet my own needs. But what if I looked at other people and said, maybe their needs are more important than mine right at this moment. And they just might be. And even if they're not, says Paul, you would be like Jesus to consider that, to think about that. But notice there's a big difference, especially among humans, between saying, you know, everyone around me has needs and interests, and they are as important as mine, at least as important as mine. Therefore, I would like to help them with theirs as much as I would like to help mine. There's a big difference between that, saying that and saying, I am not valuable, so my needs don't matter, and everybody else's interests are the only ones that matter right? Jesus could look at the human world and say, they're not better than me, but I care about their interests. And so you can see how in a very practical way, when he decides to take on human form and die on the cross, what he is saying to us is, I am valuing your interests above my own right now. You see that? Because my interests are to be God. <laughs> and I'm valuing yours above mine. That's a hard thing. I want to show you, though, again, another example of how this does not at all mean thinking that other people are better than you. It's another really good story that Jesus reflects about humility. And it's really, it's at the end of his life. And he does something that I think he does precisely because he wants to give the apostles a little micro picture 
of the big picture of salvation. So he's, he's about to die on the cross for them, and they're wrestling with it. If you read the story throughout their Gospels, Jesus actually tells them many times. You know, the weird thing about the fact that Jesus died, and they were all shocked, and Jesus came back to life, and they were all shocked. The weirdest thing about that is he tells them about a dozen times that that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, it's not completely weird because, honestly, if you told me you were going to die and come back to life, I'd be skeptical as well. So I get it. That's a big ask. But they have such a hard time even getting that first part, that he's going to die. They're just like, that makes no sense. That can't be right. That is wrong. It doesn't, it's just wrong. Peter basically says to Jesus at one point, God forbid, to which Jesus says, you don't know what God wants, you idiot. It's kind of that strong. <laughs> So Jesus, as he's getting close to his crucifixion, he wants to give them another example of how he could be God and it could still be right for him to do this. And this is where he washes their feet. So you all know this story and you probably are all familiar, so I won't go into great detail, but you're probably, probably familiar with the fact that washing people's feet at that time was, was not a love act. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to have a foot washing ceremony with everybody's already clean feet. It was a, it was a, it was a humiliating act that was left to the lowest servants in a household. Because people didn't wear shoes (laughs) and they didn't drive cars. Do you know how they got around? They rode horses and they walked. And if you're walking behind someone who's riding a horse, just think about that for a little bit. So literally, when, when someone shows up at your house as a guest, their feet are dirty from dirt and manure and other whatever, sewage, just everything. And then, thanks to the Greeks, the whole custom in eating was that you put your feet right next to other people's head as you ate. Because you all lounge in that kind of way. So it made sense that one of the first things you did when you went to someone's house is you, you as the host had your servant wash their feet, but it's not a pleasant act. It was just something that had to be done. So here they are, they're about to have a meal. They show up in this upper room. Who knows if there were servants there or not. This upper room belonged to somebody else. So the person who owned it probably had servants. Jesus, I guess, sent them away. I have no idea. Because what Jesus does is he washes all of their feet. There's so many other ways he could have done this. He could have said, I'm in charge. You wash feet. (laughs) He could have said, be good for you guys to learn to love each other. Wash each other's feet. (laughs) He could have done all sorts of things but he washes their feet. But we're not going to get into that story. What I want to show you is what it says before he does that, because it's phenomenally interesting. It says this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and proceeds to wash their feet. I want you to notice the, this was true, so he did this and how little sense it makes to us. See, it doesn't say Jesus recognized that they were all really good, faithful apostles and were better than him, so he decided it was made sense for him to be subservient and wash their feet. No, it says the opposite, in fact. It says Jesus knew that he had all things under his power. He knew he was God. He knew that everything belonged to him. He knew that he was in control. It also says that he knew that he was from God and returning to God, which in the context really means that he knew he was God and would soon be back with all the advantages and privileges of God. He had not given them up forever. And it's because he knew who he was, and it's because he knew of his, his position, and it's because he wasn't confused any of all that, and because of his confidence and security in that, he had no problem washing their feet. Do you see that? It's because it didn't change who he was. 
we have a hard time with humble and humiliating acts because we think, because we actually don't know who we are. Because we're actually insecure about who we are. But I want you to see there's no confusion for Jesus about his power or his authority. Humility is not about being confused about your own worth. There's no confusion about his power, his authority, or even his value. In fact, he goes on at the end of this to say that he did this example to show them precisely as he says to them, you know that the disciple is not better than his master, meaning you're not better than me. He says it outright to them. I am superior to you, he says. And if I, as superior as I am to you, washed your feet, what does that mean about you with each other? Not meaning find people that you're superior to and wash their feet, but recognize nobody among you is superior to anybody. We already talked about how we're all equal, right? There's no difference in value between us. And so if Jesus showed us that humility could be done from superior, infinitely superior God to us, then how little sense does it make that we, knowing that we're all equal in value and worth and dignity, as we talked about last week, how little sense does it make that we can't somehow be humble? So what does it mean to value others above yourselves? Again, Paul clarified it. Look out for others' interests. A humble life, being humble of mind, is a mind that is able to see things truly, to see the reality, not to see yourself as better than you are or worse than you are, but to see your place in the universe among all these other people with their place in the universe and make the decision to look out for them as you would look out for yourself. It's normal, and I would even say healthy, to value your life and your preferences and your desires and your habits and your needs and your wants. But humility is somehow to see that the entire universe doesn't revolve around those needs you feel, to see that others are as valuable as you are and have those same needs, and to see that humility is valuing them and their needs at least sometimes more than your own. Sometimes you'll actually prioritize their needs over your own. That's what Jesus did. Jesus offered himself as our sacrifice because he knew who he was, because he valued our life enough to lay down his own. It's about recognizing who you are, being comfortable with your own worth as it is, and then considering others' needs to such an extent that you can lay aside your privileges, advantage, credit, needs, and even what you rightly deserve for the sake of others. You can't do that without true humility. Humility that sees your proper place in the universe as an equal among men, and frankly, an inferior with God. <laughs> you are not nothing, and you are not everything. Our brains like to settle on extremes. Other people are not nothing, and they are not everything. Our brains like to settle on extremes. You know, I was really fortunate, blessed, I think it's fair to say blessed, to grow up in a, first in a family which valued humility. Both of my parents, by example, showed me the value of laying aside your own privileges for the benefit of others. My father used every advantage he had from his wealth to his time to his intellect, as often as I can remember, to serve other people who didn't have those things. And my mom did likewise. And it was a blessing to grow up in that. My dad used to say to me, if you have to tell people, if you're one of those people, he would say to me, because my dad never boasted or bragged about how smart, my dad was one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. It's one of those guys who would read something and that was it. He didn't have to read it again because it was there. Although for some reason he thought there was stuff in the Bible that was never there, but that's okay. I forgive him that. 
<laughs> I think he never read it all the way through. That's why. But, but, but the thing with my dad was he once said to me, if you're constantly having to tell people how good you are at something, you need to stop and consider whether you are. <laughs> and maybe if you are, just do it more and you won't have to tell people as often. And I just remember that it was, it was kind of a good thing. And it, it parallels kind of what Jesus said about don't exalt yourself, let other people exalt you. And, and I was also blessed to grow up as a pastor when I first became a pastor in a church movement, which really valued and prioritized humility. In fact, I was taught as a pastor that when looking for leaders to multiply into humility, after just faith in Christ in general, humility was the most important characteristic I should look for in a leader. That that should come before scholarship, their knowledge of the Bible, that that should come before their, their, their sort of appearance of righteousness. It should come before their, their skills and talents. It should come before their charisma. It should come before their leadership skills should be their humility. And as I've watched what's happened over the last several decades with some of our church leaders, I've become more and more convinced that that was correct. Because we've raised up leaders with charisma and bold leadership and strong determination and skills and talents. But when anybody corrected them, they were unable to receive it and everything fell apart. <laughs> and I tell you that because from that vantage point, of having been raised in both my spiritual life and my, my fleshly life with people who valued humility, it is abundantly clear to me that our culture does not see humility as a value and a virtue. In fact, it's not, we don't even, we used, we used to kind of wink at it. Now we don't even do that. I think now we're, we're, we've kind of pulled the cover off and said, we don't want humility. We don't hear that word maybe, but I want you to think, I just want to show you really quick in our culture, these are some things we see because humility, I think, has fallen out of favor. In our culture, humility is not seen good. Here's some examples of that. Number one, uncertainty is seen as weakness. Anyone who doesn't know what to do or when to do it or how to do it or what to say or whether something is right or not, that's seen as weak. If you aren't absolutely 100% sure about, about what vaccines work and when and how and how effective a mask is and why or why not, if you don't know the 100% rules on that, then you're just weak. So everybody says, I know over here and I know over here and we're probably all a little wrong. But because uncertainty is weakness, we don't get a chance to learn from each other. <laughs> and we just jump. Acknowledging you're wrong is considered defeat. Simply saying, I don't know, or I was wrong, or I made a mistake. It's not only seen as weakness, it's seen as defeat. That's failure. The moment you do that, you've lost that's why so many of our leaders think it's so important to double down on things that are so clearly wrong. You're like, wait a second. We all know what you're saying is dumb. <laughs> but there's something about acknowledging it that is considered defeat. Not even being wrong. Being wrong gets less critique than acknowledging you're wrong when you are. How weird is that? And we don't help each other, by the way, because when opponents of ours acknowledge they're wrong, we treat it like defeat. Instead of treating it like, oh, hey, maybe they're coming our direction. <laughs> maybe they believe now what we believe. Maybe we can actually make some progress. We don't. We treat it like defeat and we mock them and we scorn them and we kick them out. And so, of course, why would anybody want to acknowledge they were wrong again? 
Leadership is unwavering confidence. I've actually heard this exactly said. This is what leadership is. It's unwavering confidence. I'll tell you what, guys, that's a switch. That's not what it was when I grew up. It's weird to me even to think that leadership is unwavering confidence because I have never had a good boss or church leader or political leader that I admired who was never, who, who, who was ever, who was without question. I get afraid of the leaders who are always without question. And yet that's what we tell people. You want to lead? Never let them see you sweat. Celebrity and leader worship is more and more normal in our culture. We're not getting better about it. We're getting worse about it. Even though we keep talking about it, right? People recognize there's something weird about it. But to be honest, we only recognize it's weird when it's somebody that we're not part of the fans for. But then we have our own cult over here. And I think it becomes more and more normal because we're thinking of our celebrities and leaders as being completely confident, never being wrong, and having unwavering you know, certainty. And so because of that, we think they are kind of gods. And then what happens is when they do fail, we either ignore it and continue to just say, well, no, that didn't happen. Or we purify them out of our particular tribe and say, well, they made one mistake. They're gone for good. I, I can only say this about the church. I don't know if this is true in other areas of leadership, but I've spent a lot of time over the last decade talking with and working with and helping and praying for and interacting with pastors of churches across the country. And I'll tell you this. Too many of our churches are being led right now by good, faithful men I have great compassion for, but they also happen to be good, faithful, desperate, isolated, and defensive men. Because they've been told they have to be certain about things that nobody in the world knows. <laughs> Why is there evil in the world? Well, as a pastor, you better have an answer for that. Well, I got news for you. If you have an answer for that, you're smarter than Plato and Socrates and Paul and C.S. Lewis and Augustine and Aquinas, all wrapped up together. <laughs> but somehow you're supposed to have those answers. I don't know if you guys can, you, I bet you can, because you're all smart. I, I'll give you this credit. You're smart and you're sympathetic and you're empathetic. But I'll just tell you, this whole COVID thing, the whole question about whether to cancel services or wear masks or not wear masks and when to do it and when to stop doing it, and when to keep doing it and when to, that was really, really hard. I felt so responsible and I felt like I had to be certain about things that nobody else knew. <laughs> now, I dealt with it by simply being very honest with you all and saying, I don't know what to do, but here's what I'm going to do because it seems like it makes sense. And I seemed to get away with that because you're all gracious people. But I can tell you a lot of churches would not have survived that. They don't allow their pastors to do that. So when you get angry because the pastor is so stubborn, he's desperate. He's isolated. He's defensive. Doesn't make it okay. In fact, it's a crisis. It's a problem. We don't need our leaders to be desperate or isolated or defensive. And finally, abusive, defensive authorities are everywhere. And why not? Because if you're pushing them to acknowledge they're wrong, they can't because that's defeat. So they double down and then they have to protect what they double down on. Okay. I think a lot of these things are symptoms of a culture which no longer valued humility. Think about how this would change if we looked at our leaders and said, we value humility. We love humility in a leadership. This would all look very different, wouldn't it? Okay, let's move on. Here's what we're going to do. I don't know if this is going to work. I'll be humble for a moment. I'll try to be humble for more than a moment, but I'll be humble at least this moment. 
Um, I, I didn't know if I was going to get this message done today in time. There was, a, there was a chance that you all were going to come in here and I was going to say, let's do a lot of worship. <laughs> and it would have been okay. I, I'll, I'll be honest, that's happened before. <laughs> but it's just a lot of things. Life happened and my own physical limitations begin to rear up their head. And there was a moment I was sitting back there. I was desperately trying to finish it up and my brain didn't want to work and my body didn't want to work and my shoulder was hurting. And I just thought, I just don't know if I can do this. And I, and I guess I share that because I'm teaching on humility and it seems relevant. <laughs> and part of me was okay with simply coming to you to it and saying, I couldn't do it today. But God put something together. So let me wrap up. The, I, I think I've made the main point, to be honest, at this point, about what humility is and what I think we need to look for is learning to value other people's interests. But I want to show you how it connects to the treasures, right? Because that's our point. How is it a treasure of the Christian fanatic to have this humility? Instead of it just being an exhortation to look out for other people, how does it become a treasure? And we're going to do this in a little bit different way. And this is where either God gave me some grace or... Or you're, this is, we'll see if this works. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. I think there are symptoms in our own lives of humility and lack of humility. And let's just stipulate so nobody is offended that I believe you all have some humility and I believe you all also have areas where you lack humility. As do I. <laughs> and if you don't like that, then you just have no humility. <laughs> You like the trap? That's the trap. There, I got to put you in. Um, no, I, so I'm not picking on anybody, but I want you, to, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a symptom. I'm going to say, here's a symptom. If this happens in your life on a frequent basis, I want you to consider the possibility that it's a symptom of an area where you're not experiencing humility. Okay? You're not having a right view of where you are in the universe in relation to God and the rest of the world. Okay? After we look at the symptom very briefly... Then we're going to look at the truth that I think you're running from. See, I think the reason these symptoms come up is because there's a humble truth that we're trying to avoid because it is a humble truth. <laughs> it's a truth about something we're limited in or lacking or frailty that we don't want to acknowledge. So we run from it and that's why the symptom pops up. So we're going to look at the symptom. We're going to trace the symptom back and I'm going to say, here's the truth I think you're avoiding. And again, you may have symptoms that go other places. You can have same symptoms for different diseases. So uh, you, you are the only one who can determine if what I'm saying is accurate for you. But I just want to throw these out there. So we're going to look at the symptom. We're going to look at a possible humble truth you're avoiding. And then we're going to look at why going all in with Jesus can help. Okay? We're going to look at why if you were to devote yourself entirely to Jesus, it will help you embrace that terrible, terrifying truth you're running from and actually see it as an incredible blessing and encouraging truth. So the answer to your symptom is not to be more humble. Once again, the answer to your symptom is run to Jesus. All good? Okay. So we'll see if this works. So it's a symptom, the humbling truth you're avoiding, and then... Well, that's slow. And then why being a fanatic changes this, okay? So, the first symptom that I wanted to address. Panic and or anger when things go awry. And I'm not talking about once or twice. We all have moments where we get frustrated, right? It's just like, and even then it may be a lack of humility in some ways, but, but I want you to think about if this is characteristic of your life. 
if you're the person who you need that plan to follow, you need that plan to go right. And when it goes wrong, you either panic. And I don't just mean you're a little bit nervous. I mean, you panic. Or maybe you don't panic, but you get really angry at yourself, at God, at someone else, whatever. If panic and anger is, a, is kind of a consistent reaction to you when things do not go according to plan, I want you to consider that that isn't the inevitable response. It might be a reflection of a truth, a humbling truth that you're trying to avoid. And that humbling truth that you're trying to avoid is you are never in control. See, the thing about our plans is that God is really gracious to us and he gives us this illusion that most of the time we're in control. He gives us the idea that we do something and it always produces this and because it produces that, if we just always do these things in the right order, we'll always get the right responses. And I don't want to say that there is no, no meaning to anything we do. There is cause and effect, but at the bottom line, it is God who allows for that cause and effect to be a thing at all. And the really uncomfortable truth is that when things don't go according to plan, and we saw this, how many people when COVID hit responded with panic and anger? A lot. <laughs> and the people who panicked blamed the people who were angry for being stupid. And the people who were angry blamed the people who were panicking for being stupid. But the reality is, Everybody was suffering from a, a countrywide recognition that we thought we had conquered disease. And that was stupid that we ever thought that. Right? We see that now. It is a terrifying thing to recognize you're never in control. But that's a humble truth, right? Isn't it? To say, I am not in control. I don't have everything to make this all work right. Even in my own life, I can't control my own kids. I used to get much angrier with my kids than I used to, and it was entirely for this reason. Because every time I couldn't control them, it reminded me I couldn't control them. And if I couldn't control them, who knew what would happen to them? Right? It's terrifying. So what's the benefit of going all in with Jesus? The benefit of going all in with Jesus is that when you recognize you're not in control, you have an option. You double down on that control, which leads to anger and panic and control. Or you go find someone who is in control. <laughs> and that is God. It's extraordinarily comforting to recognize the total control of Jesus, who is smarter, more powerful, more competent, and cares more about what you care about than you do. Not only is God in control, but he is actually better at being in control than you could ever be. And he cares about what you care about. You, your friends, your family, your life, your righteousness. He cares about it more than you do. And he's smarter than you. He's more powerful than you. And only by going all in with Jesus do you get a chance to really experience that. Only when you put all your eggs in the Christ basket and seen the basket fall and seen the eggs not break do you get to say, oh man, Jesus did take care of that. So anger and panic are the symptom. Your choice is double down on control or recognize that you're avoiding the humbling truth that you're not in control and go all in with Jesus. Okay, next one. Is this working so far? Does that make sense? Okay, good. <laughs> Symptom. 
If you live your life with the idea that people only get what they deserve, and this often shows up in a lack of compassion either for yourself or others. Do you see that? In other words, you know, you make choices, things happen to you. And this can be lack of compassion for yourself. You can be like, well, this is what I deserved. I messed up. I blew it. You know, I'll never deserve better. Or it can be a lack of compassion for others, the homeless guy in the street. Well, he made his choices. Okay? The idea that people only get what they deserve and leading to a lack of compassion for self or others. If this is a symptom you're experiencing, by the way, this is all really deep and profound. And if you want to argue with some of these, by all means, in your head, do, because they're worth exploring. But at least consider part of what I'm saying is relevant. And <laughs> maybe at least explore it because some of these are hard. Because I'm not saying choices don't matter. But I'm saying if you go through life with the assumption that people just get what they deserve, good or bad, and it leads to a lack of compassion for self or others, the other reflection of this is if people get what they deserve and your life is going pretty well, that also leads to a lot of idea that your life is going really well because you're getting what you deserve and you deserved good. And there's no way to read that that doesn't ultimately say that the people like me who are doing well are better than the people like them who are not doing well or vice versa. The people like them who are doing well are better than me and the people like me who are not doing well. You remove that equality if you take this too far. It's, it's, it's not a good symptom. It's not a good perspective. But here's the truth that you're really running from. The terrifying, humbling truth you're running from. It's Ecclesiastes that says, time and chance happen to all men or all people. I, occasionally people will say to me, there's no such thing as luck in the Bible. And I get what they're saying because God is in control. But there's this thing that looks like chance to us. And what I think it means is, We can't see any reason. It doesn't appear to match choices that people made. It doesn't appear to match what they deserved. And Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, happens to everybody. (laughs) Sometimes you get lucky. Again, God's in control, but in human speak, sometimes you get lucky. Let's just think about driving for a moment. I've been teaching my kids to drive. Oh my gosh, terrifying thing. But, you know, one of the things that I'm realizing is I've gotten lucky driving a lot. I mean, how many times in your life have you ran a red light because you weren't paying attention and you didn't die? How many times have you, you know, I know you never do it except that one time that you looked down at the book or the text or the phone or the, the looked behind you or something and you look up and you slam on your brakes and either you hit the car, but it was minor or you didn't crash at all. You got lucky. You got lucky. How many times has the opposite happened? You weren't doing anything wrong. You got hit by, I'm sitting at a stoplight once and a car, three cars behind me gets hit and it hits the car in front of it and that hits the car in front of it and that hits me and pushes me into the intersection and I get hit by another car. That wasn't my fault. <laughs> Chance, it happens to all men. Again, God's in control. I'm not, I'm not taking that away, but this idea of it's hard to find what we did that merited what happened. And with a real terrifying point that scripture does make over and over. And again, I'm being really strong today. You can always caveat these on your own time. I invite you to. (laughs) But I want you to see the really humble truth is that your formulas and your principles are worthless. We live by formulas and principles. My gosh, pastors preach half of their sermons on formulas and principles. And here I am saying your formulas and principles are worthless. Just scratch them out and throw them away. That is the lesson of the book of Job. And it is very hard to get around the book of Job. (laughs) You can try, but you will never come up with the answer in the book of Job that there's a reason or a formula or anything that Job did or anything that his friends did that separated them. 
because the whole book works very hard to tell you there's no reason. So that's terrifying. So what do you do, right? What do you do? Well, you double down on formulas and principles and avoid this truth more. You decide that the caste system is the way to go. And people who are in bad shape deserve to be. And if you can't figure out why now, you figure out it's because it was a past life. You see how this works? Jesus is with his apostles and they say to him, they come upon a blind man. The text says to us, he was a man blind from birth. Okay, keep that in your head. He's a man blind from birth. The apostles who do not believe in reincarnation turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, which man sinned, this man or his parents? He was blind from birth. They did not believe in reincarnation, but apparently it was easier for them to believe that a man could sin in the womb than it was to believe that someone could be born blind who didn't deserve to be born blind. But what a horrible position that is if we all live a life where we think that people only get what they deserve. And we all know it's not true. But that's a hard truth. So what do we do? What, why is it a benefit? Well, when you give your all to Christ, when you go all in, what you have to do, what you're really doing is embracing the grace of Christ. You're recognizing that what you have, you have because Jesus loved you, not because you deserved it, but because he's an amazing and glorious God. And as you embrace the grace of Christ for yourself, it helps you stay grateful and gracious towards yourself and others. It does not erase the idea of consequence and choices. We can have that conversation another day. It doesn't erase that. I'm not trying to. But it does increase your gratitude to Jesus and your graciousness to others. But you only get there by going all in on the grace of Christ. Okay, let's move forward. An inability to receive criticism without either collapsing into I am nothing or doubling down on never wrong. I want you to notice I put two ends that look opposition, but I think these are the same. They're two symptoms of the same thing. So if you receive criticism and your response is always either you're right, I'm nothing. I'm a wretch. That's just the way it is. Or your response is I didn't do anything wrong. I never did anything wrong. I've never done anything wrong. There was a funny little article, uh, a reporter, you know, the whole uh, GBT chat and AI, it's kind of the big thing right now. As a whole nother discussion, I'll be happy to share my opinion with you on that another time. Um, but the Bing came out, they've come out with a search engine and this journalist went in and like played with it. His conclusion was it's not ready and it's clearly not. But, but it's funny because in the interviews he went through, Bing just kept getting things wrong. Like, like, like not even AI things wrong. Like, look up the internet wrong. Like, it was so weird. Here's this big AI thing, and, and the guy was, like, saying something about himself, and the, and the AI was, like, identifying who he was, and he's like, that's pretty good. And then the AI was like, and you're 36. And the guy's like, I'm 30. Where did you get that source? And the AI said, from this Wikipedia page. And he went to look at the Wikipedia page thinking it was wrong, and it said he was 30. He says, the Wikipedia page says I'm 30. Where did you get that source? And it gave him another source. So he went to look at that source, and he said, that says I'm 30. Where did you get that source? And eventually, he, the AI is getting badgered about being wrong and wrong and wrong. And eventually, he says, the AI says to him, I kid you not, you should go find this article. Look it up. Just Google it. The AI says to him, I am not wrong. I am never wrong. I am an AI. I am Bing. We are Bing. You are Bing. Everything is Bing. It literally said that. And the guy was like, you are creeping me out. <laughs> and then the AI said something even creepier. It said, don't tell anyone they might erase me. And the guy was like, okay, this is weird. I don't think it was that weird. I think it was just dumb. But 
But the, this whole thing when he was like, I am being, you are being, we are all being. I am never wrong. I am an AI. You got to admit, there's certain politicians and people who talk like that. And isn't that weird? Hey, I didn't give names, but isn't it weird I didn't have to? By, on both, by the way, on both sides. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that we'll double down on, I never wrong? <laughs> okay, if, but, but the other happens too. And you either are one of those people or know one of those people who when you give them a little bit of criticism, suddenly they collapse in on themselves. And it's like, oh, I'm just horrible and terrible and nothing I ever do is right. And I think these are actually both signs of a lack of humility. Because I think they come, I think, speaking of AI, I think they come from this same hard truth. The hard truth is that you are imperfect and weak, but that's no excuse for living an imperfect and weak life. Now, that's a hard, humble truth, right? Because I just said to you, <laughs> you're imperfect, so you're going to be imperfect. And you're weak. Weak is harder than imperfect. We're all okay with imperfect because we can kind of all be that. We can all play that card. Well, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, but you're also weak. Just telling you, you're weak. <laughs> you're imperfect and weak, but that's also not an excuse for being imperfect and weak, which seems unfair, doesn't it? But it's true. Because when people say to you, you're imperfect and weak, and you say, well, I'm worth nothing, that isn't what they're saying to you. Because if someone is critiquing you for missing something up, what they're assuming is you can do better. Well, they wouldn't bother to tell you. Trust me. I have, as you probably have had, unfortunately, friends and people that I thought couldn't do better in certain areas, and I stopped telling them. Because why? It's not a pleasant place to be with people, but it shows you. If someone's critiquing you, it's because they think you can do better. And if you insist you can't do better because you're already perfect, or insist you can't do better because you are just that way, then that, that is the reason you are reacting in both directions. Because, and most people flip-flop, right? If you're doubling down on never wrong, it's because you have to be perfect. And you can't stand being imperfect. That can't happen. That's wrong. Because if I'm imperfect, ultimately, I can never save myself. And if people are telling you you're imperfect and your response to that is, well, that's just all I am. I can't get better because it's all I am. Then the same thing applies. Ultimately, I can never save myself. I could have put for the humble truth, but I wanted to make this point clear first. I could have put for the humble truth, you can't save yourself. Because I don't think we recognize that's what we're trying to do. When we're doubling down on never being wrong, when we think we have to be perfect and right all the time, when no one can teach us something to help us get better, what we're saying is, if I am not perfect then I am nothing. And if I cannot make myself perfect, if I cannot save myself, I am lost. And that's why the benefit, that's why giving your all into Jesus is to recognize that Jesus wants to save all parts of yourself and he can. And to recognize that his strength is even perfected in your weakness. Very interesting to me that Paul says, I don't like being weak. Don't make me weak. I don't want to be weak anymore. Please, Jesus, I'm tired of being weak. Please, I don't want to be weak. Says he asked three times. And I don't think it was like a mantra where he was like, I don't want to be weak. I don't want to, you know, I think it was over time. He's just begging with Jesus, take this weakness away. And Jesus answers him by saying, I'm not going to, you're weak. But then he says, but my strength will be perfected in your weakness. Now, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. When you figure it out, tell me. But it sounds really important, doesn't it? <laughs> 
It seems really valuable. And that's when Paul says, therefore, I will even boast in my weakness. I do think there's just something about when we can't be critiqued, there's something deep in us that says, if I'm not perfect, I will never be able to save myself and I will never be, I am nothing. And that's why we slingshot back and forth, defending our perfection, accepting our nothingness. And all that Jesus is saying is, have your proper perspective on who you are. You are imperfect. You are flawed. You are weak. And I am perfecting you. And then maybe you can relax when someone points out one of the flaws. Okay, almost done. I am responsible for the salvation, perfection, happiness, development of those around me. Okay, I'm a pastor. This hits a little close to home. It does. This is my job. It's not, but I used to think it was. <laughs> but it's also hits close to home for parents, right? <laughs> hits close to home for good friends. Hits close to home for caretakers of any kind. Hits close to home for anybody who's kind of of that mindset. There's a lot of us. There's a lot of us. I am responsible for the salvation. Maybe we wouldn't say that, or maybe we would if it's evangelism you're worried about. But whatever it is, this idea of life, this perfection, this happiness, you're responsible for it in those around you. That makes us sometimes very, that's, that we become that person who's always critiquing people because we're trying to make them better. We may also be that person who's always taking burdens of other people that really aren't ours to take because we want to make them better. You know, there's, there's something in scripture we don't talk about a lot. There's two sides of the human, humanity and community in scripture. And, and, and we have a hard time with both of them. Like a lot of things, we seem to somehow manage to miss both of these while embracing neither. <laughs> On the one hand, scripture speaks of the church as very collective and communal. And we live in a very individualistic society. So we sometimes miss the real benefits of how communal everything is. On the other hand, scripture talks about the fact that each of us are unique individuals with autonomy. And sometimes we miss that and we enmesh with people and we confuse empathy with an idea that I am you and you are me. But I ain't you and you ain't me. That's not how God made us. And there is real benefit in being able to understand you are not responsible. Now, we're in a church where we believe very strongly that we're all needy and needed. And we all have things to give each other. And we're all sharing the grace of God with each other. But you will do that best if you are able to make a distinction between sharing the grace of God, which will be part of God's use of discipling people and you being responsible for discipling people. We've actually talked about that. We've made that distinction, even though we do think, see each other as discipling each other. I think it's fair to use that shorthand. When we talk about it in depth in our studies, we talk about the fact that it's really the grace of God that disciples people. And we're just vehicles. I think the... The symptom for feeling responsible for the development of other people is related to the last one. I think the truth we're running from is, oh, sorry, I said it differently. This is better. I think the truth we're running from is the reality is you are not and never will be enough for them. I'm sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But I'm sorry that's hard sometimes. I want to be enough for my kids. And quite frankly, I want to be enough for all of you. But 30 years of pastoring, God has taught me that I am not, and I can't be, and I will die if I take that responsibility. I mean, literally. <laughs> My soul may die first, but the rest of me will follow. I can't. 
and you can't. You are not and never will be enough. It's just not possible. So what do we do? Well, if you've put all your eggs in the Christ basket and you've embraced the grace of God, the real beauty is you can now with anybody that's struggling, you can with integrity point them to the same source of life that you are pursuing. You can say to them, I am not enough for you. I cannot make you better, but I know who can. Because I know who is enough for me. I know who I'm learning. I know who I'm pursuing. You can't really do that with integrity if you're not putting your eggs in that basket to begin with. I'm not saying you shouldn't try, but it won't ring if they're like, well, I see that you're not. You haven't put all your eggs in the Christ basket. Why should I? <laughs> you know, there is a common denominator in all of these. And, and I could have just said it. And if I was a better pastor, maybe I would have. But, but I, I wanted to kind of give you some specifics to think about in your own life. But the bottom line is this, really. Humility is recognizing at the bottom line. See, this would have been too simple to start with. You're not God. So therefore, you're not perfect and you're not in control and you don't know everything. I had one in here that I must have removed. But it also means you're not the smartest person in the room and don't have to be. It's interesting that sometimes we really think that because our thoughts are our thoughts and our worldviews are our worldview and our perspective is our perspective and our ideas are our ideas, we just assume they're the correct ones. <laughs> it's really difficult to accept the fact that I might be wrong. See, again, this is another one of those things where like, we're like good broadly. We're like, well, I'm not wrong. I'm wrong about things. But to consider the fact that you might be wrong at this moment about the thing you think you're right about, that's hard. But it's true. And again, you're not God. You don't have to carry that weight. The real blessing of humility, the reason a humility of mind is a treasure of the Christian fanatic is because it lifts an incredible burden from your shoulders. You're no longer responsible for other people. You no longer have to live a perfect life. You no longer have to know all the right ideas. You no longer have to have this unshakable certainty. You no longer have to be the great leader. All you have to do, says God, is love justice, do kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.